Hi, my name is Julian Champlis. I'm a professor of English and a core faculty in the Consortium for Critical Diversity and Indigenous Age Research, or CEDAR, at Michigan State University. I'm also the Val Berriman Curator of History at the MSU Museum. You are listening to Reframing History. I can turn the inside of this mountain into hot, molten rock. No one, not even Captain Marvel, can survive that. Shazam! That audio from The Adventures of Captain Marvel, a serial produced by Republic Pictures and based on Fawcett comic book character Captain Marvel, is a great way to start this episode of Reframing History. While Superman's creation marked the start of the golden age of comic books, Captain Marvel's popularity rivaled Superman, outselling the character in the 1940s. That fact is one of many complexities about publishing in the United States that my guest for this week's episode can tell us more about. Dr. Brooks Hefner, professor of English, and director of graduate studies at James Madison University. I wanted to talk with Professor Hefner because along with his colleague Ed Timke, he received a National Endowment of the Humanities Digital Advancement Grant for a project called Circulating American Magazines. This is a data visualization project designed to make 100 years of circulation figures for major American periodicals publicly accessible. As someone with a DH project engaging with foundational questions about the history of U.S. print culture, I thought it would be great to learn more about the origins of the project, how he sees digital humanities practice as a means to expand scholarship, engage with students, and reach out to the public. Let's give a listen to our conversation. Hi, my name is Julian Chambliss, and you're here for another episode of Reframing History. Today, I'm talking with Brooks Hefner, who is a professor at James Madison University. Brooks is also the director of graduate studies and a author. His book, Word on the Street, American Language of Vernacular Modernism, came out in 2017. The reason he's on uh, Reframing History a lot to do with a digital project that he's doing right now called Circulating American Magazines, which is a data visualization project designed to make over 100 years of circulation figures for major American periodicals publicly available. To me, this was like an ideal project to talk about these questions of creating public knowledge and also, I think importantly, the hidden labor associated with digital humanities work. So, Brooks, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today for the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, could you give people a little bit of your background about, you know, where'd you get your degree, how you came to James Madison, and how you hit upon this very interesting digital project? So, I did my PhD in English at the CUNY Graduate Center in New York City, and my dissertation, which ultimately evolved into that book that you mentioned, was was really about looking at popular popular forms of publication and kind of giving writers that, that are often below the line when we think about literary production a little bit of credit and beginning to kind of contextualize 
experimentation. What that led me to really do is think about about the, the practices of publication for popular writers a lot. And it got me really interested in periodical studies, which is one way that kind of magazine history is framed, especially within the discipline of English. I, I took the job at James Madison after I finished my degree in 2009 and have been there ever since. In the process of working on revising the dissertation toward a book publication, one of the things that I got interested in was debates about, essentially debates between writers and editors about the success or failure of a given magazine. And I can trace a lot of this back to uh, reading some letters between, um, between Earl Stanley Gardner, who's the, the detective writer who created Perry Mason and began his career writing for Pulp Magazine, and an editor... Uh, a couple of editors with a magazine called Black Mask, which is one of the really famous pulp magazines, you know, where Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler got published first. And so Gardner was really didn't like Hammett. He thought Hammett was too arty. And he wrote to the editor saying, I'm sure that every time you publish Hammett, that the magazine's circulation drops. And it was interesting because it, it sort of was a window into the mind of writers, especially popular writers, thinking about you know, how their work might influence the circulation of a given magazine. And you, there are some other stuff about this particular magazine that you'll sometimes see where people, you know, historians will kind of throw off these, these lines about, oh, well, when this guy's name appeared on the cover, circulation jumped 20% or, or whatever, right? But one of the things that I realized is that there's really, for most people, there's really no way to verify any of these claims. Right. Um, and right. this is an important point, right? And when... A lot of historians talk about print culture in this period. We know that publications are popular, but we're often just estimating the numbers. Exactly. Right? And, a, and a lot of times, if you get numbers, you're getting them really processed, right? So you might get an average at the time that the magazine was, its, was at its peak. Hmm. Or you might just be getting one number that that represents the highest circulation a magazine ever had. Or you might get an editor making something up in a memoir in order to inflate his own, you know, ego um, and legacy. Or you might even get uh, a magazine editor who's trying to um, reimagine his magazine or, you know, her magazine as a as a more coterie publication, and so deflating the numbers. This is one of the things that occurred to me when I saw uh, the initial announcement for your project. When I think about um, these characters, because I often think about pul publications as a precursor to comic books, the right. authors that are like strongly associated with a character format that will become a superhero, a character like say Tarzan, or a character like say Conan, right. or Doc Savage, or something like that, or the Spider. Absolutely right. They all appear in these magazines, and why I don't usually say, you know, this character sold this magazine. It's the selling of the magazine in total that taps into this popular element, right? This is a popular magazine. I know that right. it sells a lot, but the reality is, is do I know for a fact when Robert E. Howard's Conan is appearing in Weird Tales or some magazine like that, 
that it feels more than say Cole, who was, you know, regarded by scholars of Howard, not as popular a character. Right? So right. like absolutely absolutely. absolutely. Super popular because his popularity really kicks in later as a paperback property. Right. Right. And so yeah. You know, what you're talking about is crucial to how we formulate a narrative of publication history for popular characters. And that's why it's really interesting to see that you're using these digital humanities tools to really answer this sort of fundamental question. Yeah, I mean, it, so here's kind of how this unfolded. When I, when I started asking these questions, I came across a reference to a really pretty obscure volume in the Library of Congress, and I believe the reference was in was in uh, the work of David Earle, uh, Recovering Modernism, which is a great book on on the pulps and kind of the pulp, um, the way that that modernism gets kind of repurposed as, as a as a kind of pulp phenomenon. And it was a kind of offhand reference to something that seemed really mysterious, something called an ABC Blue Book. And so I went, you know, on WorldCat looking, what is what is this ABC Blue Book? What what could it be? And I've discovered that essentially it only <clears throat> existed as far as I could tell at the Library of Congress. So fortunately, I live a couple hours from the Library of Congress, and I can go in and do research visits there pretty, you know, pretty easily. So I, I set up a research visit, and I believe this was in 2010 when I did this, the first time. And and I found these really thick. They were blue on the outside, bound on volumes, which collected publishers' reports submitted to an organization called the Audit Bureau of Circulations. The Audit Bureau of Circulations was created in 1914 by advertisers who really felt they were getting ripped off because magazines could claim that they had any number of, you know, readers. Um, and so this Audit Bureau was created. You had advertisers who were members and could receive the information, and you had magazines who were members who could have their numbers essentially audited and proofed by um, by the audit bureau. Uh, so it meant that advertisers could trust these numbers and therefore advertising rates could be a little bit um, more standardized. Right? So I find these volumes and initially I'm trying to answer this one very simple question, right? Was the presence of Dashiell Hammett, did it correlate with better circulation or, or not? And so I, I found it's pretty simple to find the answer to this question. And the answer is Carl Stanley Gardner was dead wrong, and, Dashiell, and the uh, serialization of the Maltese Falcon in Black Mask was the highest circulation that that magazine ever had uh, in 1929. Um, it was also it also happened at a moment in which the magazine industry was expanding really wildly, and so you had a lot more readers, and it was right before the stock market crash, where the magazine industry took a huge hit. So you, you can't necessarily make a one-to-one -one causation argument. You can definitely see a correlation. But what I also discovered in these reports is that not only did they give figures certified, not audited, but certified and sworn by the publisher for every issue of the magazine that, that, um, that was published, but they also would take a single issue and they would give a breakdown geographically by state of newsstand sales and subscriptions. These reports were issued twice a year, so that means for every year you will have maybe a spring and a fall issue that's used to give um, advertisers, since they were the, the intended audience for these numbers, a, um, a snapshot of where people were reading the magazine. Were they reading it in 
middle America? Were they reading it on the coast? Um, how many you know subscriptions were there? How many um, uh, newsstand sales were there? Uh, and I don't. It took me a little while after initially encountering this in in 2010 to to really wrap my head around what a wealth of information this was because the volumes run the volumes at the library of congress the earliest volume is from 1924 and the latest volume is from 1972. oh wow um and so this is really for people who study magazines i mean this is the golden age of american magazines this is the saturday evening post this is life and look right this is you know this is all this all this stuff right um, so Sure, yeah. For those magazines, are they breaking them out in terms of, I'm thinking of some lifestyle magazines for African-Americans that that came out in that era. So Mm -hmm. is it all titles or is it an African-American publisher or, you know, or a more specialized audience? Because they're, of course, ethnic-themed magazines as well, or hobbyist magazines, more specialized. Right. So it's interesting because it was a kind of opt-in. So if you're a magazine and you want to attract advertisers, you would seek to become a member of the ABC, out of your circulations. So not every magazine's in there, but what's interesting, you know, to your question, is that a lot of, of African-American publications beginning in the 1940s, Ebony, Jet, Jive, Bronze Thrills, Tan, Sepia, they're all in there. Because they were seeking, they were really aggressively seeking bigger advertisers and, and attempting to really demonstrate the broad consumer base that was reading their magazine to the advertisers, right? right? Which is so, so a the story for absolutely the consumer market, the emergence of the black audience. And, absolutely, absolutely. You know, Johnson yeah. publications and so on and so forth. Ab- right, absolutely, right. So. So yeah, so it's interesting what's in. I mean, it's also interesting what's out. I mean, some magazines, you mentioned um, Weird Tales, right? Mm-hmm. So Weird Tales, I think, was um, the kind of magazine that, um, A, it started very small. You know, its its early years were, were um, I think it's, God, I, I should know this, but I think it's initially published in like Indianapolis. Um, and they didn't really necessarily feel that they needed to join, but when they get bought by um, the company that that um, publishes short stories, they end up in the ABC because short stories was in the ABC. So you see Weird Tales kind of show up in the late 30s. So um, after Howard's dead and after um, uh, Lovecraft is dead, um, but but you still see it, right? And you can still get a sense of you know where it is, right? Uh, vis-a-vis other other my same is true of of Hugo Gernsback's Amazing Stories, um, the first science fiction magazine. There were also uh, publishing combinations where advertising was sold in bulk. So Street and Smith, uh, the was one of the earliest pulp publishing houses. You know they submitted their you know their circulation numbers by month uh, as a as a whole, and they list all the magazines that are you know within each month. This also is true for uh, comic publishers who were involved in the ABC. So Marvel joins in, um, let's see, I want to check this. I think it's Marvel joins, I think in 46 
And so we have data from from the Marvel comic group beginning in 1946 through 72. And we have data from what is called National Comics. You know, that's the publishing house, I guess, the the publishing group, uh, but is essentially DC. Right, right. Um, Also from around the same time. So again, those are those are kind of larger numbers and bigger groups, but it's a kind of, you know, ultimately the project's uh, uh, hoping to kind of make all this, well, the, the, we, we are planning to make all this available and, and, and um, allow you know, interesting visualization so you can, you can, you can take it in, 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 a, in an interesting direction in terms of comparative um, analysis. So that, that brings me to like really a crux of my second big concern about talking to you, of course, is like this is a digital project. Like we, we definitions of digital humanities are are complicated, but also the broad definition is the use of digital tools in the study of the humane topics. And you're using this project, and it's explicitly described as a data visualization project. Mm-hmm. So. How are you sort of creating a project? Who's working with you? How are you creating a project? And what's your approach here in terms of like this public knowledge? I think we you sort of hit at it in your already. Right. So a bit more specific. Yeah. So um, so I sat on this information for a while because I was you know I was working on my book and I I, I, I had an inkling of how massive this was. Um, and so I was pulling information that was interesting to to me for my specific research, but but was um, holding off on doing anything you know really really uh, too much with it. And then um, a couple of years ago, I I uh, participated in a National Endowment for the Humanities Institute on magazines in New York, and talking to people there really got me thinking more about this, some of the the data that I'd collected, and and thinking, well, you know, this actually would be an immensely viable tool for people. And so um, I met someone there who was working on audit bureaus. He was a historian of media. And so I knew there was no way I could do this by myself and that I needed somebody who had a little bit more experience in media history if this was going to get off the ground. And so and so I asked him, his name's Ed Timke. Um, he's now at Duke University. And to come on with me as, as co-director of this, and and we... We decided to apply for uh, National Endowment for the Humanities, Digital Humanities Advancement Grant, which we were fortunate enough to receive last year, or covers the two-year period. And and so, you know, so we kind of hit the ground running. But the amount of work is pretty extraordinary. I think that if I had a, a better idea of the amount of work earlier on, we might have made this more like a four-year project than a two-year project. <laughs> you know, it's 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 a lot. And the, and the majority of the work that's involved. And I think probably anybody who does digital humanities can tell you is, is just assembling and, and putting the data. So the majority of our grant request was for money for student labor to put in data. And both Ed and I have been putting in data ourselves. We have other people on our kind of the main team that have been putting in data, but the majority of it is going to students who are working through those it, the images of sheets, right? So Ed and I have been to um, a couple different, uh, well, we've been to the Library of Congress multiple times. We've been to a couple of other spots. Um, and we've taken, I don't know, 25,000 photos would be like a low estimate of these reports. They're not the kind of 
thing that you can use a you can OCR. Right. And so the data that's in these reports has to be input by hand. And so you have to imagine, okay, we're doing 50 years roughly with, with this really intense data that is going to involve, you know, that involves 100 data points per magazine twice a year. So we're, we're already at probably half a million data points for this project. Go ahead. You are using students. Are you using undergrad students? Are you using graduate students? We're, yeah, yeah. So we, we're, yeah, we're hiring undergrads to do it. Uh, and you're training them on how to training read. them on how on how to read the, the. It's pretty easy. And what we've done, I mean, a lot of the work that we're doing, we're actually doing through Google Drive. So, you know, we we have a sheet, or we have a um, we have an image, and we have a sheet that's basically set up in the same general organization as the, as the image with, with auto sums that allow students to, to check for, for quality control. Yeah. And then, you know, students, you know, get a batch of these, they work through the batch, they get another batch, you know? And so, so yeah, so it's been, that's been pretty much the process for, for assembling all those. The end goal here is a, to make all this data downloadable, which is definitely, you know, a, a very important thing for us um, to have it freely downloadable so people who are working can play with the data themselves. But we also are working with the developer to build a visualization tool that will allow, you know, time, you know, if you want, if you're interested in Marvel and you want to see the kind of history of, of Marvel circulation, right? right? You can lay that out on a, on a, on a, on a timeline. Um, if you want to, compare, um, you know, Marvel versus DC um, in terms of state-by-state state data. You know, you can look at a couple of different um, Coroplus maps, that are, like heat maps that will that will show you, oh, well, this, this sold better in the South and this sold better in, in you know, in the Midwest, right? Um, one of the things I'm excited to do is um, uh, in, in the mid-40s, because the titles were so popular, uh, National Comics, or which is which we I guess we think of as DC, right, yeah. um, decided to to sell advertising in Batman and Superman separately. So we have a couple of years where Batman and Superman are pulled out of the the, the general group, and we have actual circulation numbers for about two years worth of those individual individually. And I think it'll be really uh, I could see people doing very interesting things by putting those side by side and thinking about what sort of regional differences might occur in readership oh, right. yeah. with, with those two titles, right? I mean, I, I, my, my instinct would be, oh, well, Superman, it's the heartland, you know, he's going to circulate more in the center of the country and Batman is the kind of gritty urban right. thing that would appeal to the, to, the, uh, to the coast, but it might in fact be exactly the opposite. And so yeah. and we have all that information, but, you know, we haven't, we haven't sort of put it through, put it into the visualizations yet. Yeah, um, there's so much there, right? Like, you know, I'm thinking yeah. about like Frederick Wortham and anti comic uh, Oh yes. And like, oh my God, absolutely. Show this hysteria around comics. Oh, and <laughs> it it is it's intense. I mean, if you look at the numbers for Marvel, even just just for a mainstream publisher like Marvel, the, the drop in the '50s. I mean, it's a plummet, and you can really see it. In terms of you know the way that the way that the the um, the publishers kind of change what they're doing, right? I mean, it's uh, or or are, are impacted by the 
the negative publicity around comics. So, right, yeah. um, and so part of, I think, so you were talking about kind of contribution to the public and public knowledge. I think for me personally, I think digital humanities works the best when, when it, it kind of works in concert with the traditional humanities, that it's not sort of within an echo chamber, right? Which, you know, maybe I'm, I'm a bad digital humanist for saying this, but I do feel like it was important for me in this project that the project be something that people who didn't do digital humanities could access and get something out of. Right. Sure. Um, and, 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 and I, and, and, and I think making this kind of you know, part of the way was, as I began to uncover some of this, this material and, and Ed and I started collecting more and more of it and, and realizing, Oh, this title's in here or this title's in here. Thinking about how historians, literary scholars, media historians, media studies scholars, right, sociologists, anthropologists might say, oh, well, I'm really interested in, like, the, the you know, the history of domesticity in the 20th century, right. right, gender and domesticity. Well, let's look at good housekeeping. And where can I find reliable information about where people were reading good housekeeping? And, and I want this, our project to be that kind of place where somebody can go and say, oh, well, here, now I have reliable information about how popular good housekeeping was, where it circulated more, where it circulated less, right? That kind of information, I think, um, is, is pretty easy to make the leap from being like in the digital world to being really valuable evidence in the production of, scholar, of scholarship and scholarly arguments. Right, you said so much there because I agree with you that one of the things that defines effective digital projects is this ability for it to amplify and clarify questions that we already are talking about or or we've said something about in a historical debate, right? So right. this project in particular is so amazing to me because you know, when I talk about the impact of a black character in comics, that a lot of that is, you know, it's a qualitative argument, right? Like, it, right, we're making the making the argument here that you know, the first appearance of something, but then over time, we often argue that, like, yeah, like these publishers are seeking out this sort of untapped market. Mm-hmm. So, is, is a character like Black Panther? When he added to, when he's added to the Avengers after his first you know sort of seminal appearance in Fantastic Four, is there a change in sales? Right, like you know, is there a possibility right. that we can see like as as the roster of characters at a particular company becomes more diverse, do their sales sort of transform? This is a way for us to do that beyond how we I think we usually do it, which is like, you know, we, we make a kind of qualitative argument or we, we use the letter page, right? And, and right, see how right. people are reacting to it in, in newspapers or in letter pages or in, in fan fan publications. And the other benefit here of course is that because it's numbers, it seems just so much more compelling to people. Right. <laughs> You've counted them. Right. Right. <laughs> absolutely absolutely right right yeah yeah and, and and i think that you know that for me you know the end here is not is not just having the numbers 
but the kinds of stories that the numbers can tell, just exactly like what you're saying, right? You know, how do we how do we understand? And, and in some ways, it goes back to that very first question that I had, which was, so what about Dajjal Hammett in, in Black Mask, right? Was this this is exactly the same kinds of kind of thing that you're that you're um, that you're saying with Black Panther, right? You know, well, what does it mean for this writer to appear? What does it mean for this writer's name to appear on the cover, right? Uh, one thing we found out very quickly was was that in fact, you know, Tarzan, when Tarzan appeared in Blue Book magazine in the 1920s, mm. circulation was higher than when he didn't appear. And I think one of the other things that, that that's really intriguing for for me as someone who works in the early 20th century is that when you have a, a massive amount of information like this, you start to see certain kinds of patterns that make you ask better questions, right? And I can give you a really good example. When we started putting in the data for, for issues, it, it was really intriguing. I kept saying, oh, well, how is, how is this that every magazine, whether it's the best-selling magazine in the country or a kind of bottom-feeding pulp magazine that's not doing particularly well, always has better circulation in the winter, it peaks in the winter, and it bottoms out in the summer. And I'd never seen any scholars really talk about this or think about this, the kind of seasonal quality of magazines. And of course, I mean, the kind of sloppy, you know, answer for me is, well, yeah, in the summer, people have more to do. They can be outside. In the winter, people are more likely to buy magazines than inside read because the weather's bad, right? Right. But, but beyond that, thinking about, so what does this mean for an editor? If you're an editor and you know that you have something that, that's going to appeal to more people, right? You're going to put it on the cover. It's going to attract more people because it's a really good piece of writing, because it's a really sensational story, right? Because it's, um, because it's, it's already gotten buzz somewhere else. Do you run it as soon as you get it or do you, or do you strategically put it, in the winter or in the summer. Right. 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 Because as editorial choices, I think um, editors are making choices about that involve the bottom line in right. a lot of cases. Right. And so when you begin to see these larger patterns, I think it allows you to, to say, oh, well, so maybe this is why um, they always publish this guy in the summer when they only had their core readership. But they published this other guy in the winter when they thought they might attract new readers and get some crossover readership, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Or, or, yeah. or vice versa. Or maybe we publish the crossover guy in the summer to try to flatten the readership out so that we don't have really lean summer months. But, but I think those kinds of, of um, again, those kinds of, of judgments are taking the numbers, identifying the patterns, and then, and then moving, moving, moving with it, right? Moving into the realm of argumentation, right? Um, and to a certain degree, speculation. But I think it's nice to have things to speculate on, because I think it it, it helps us to explain the big picture um, of popular publishing. You know, that's and that's ultimately the goal of the of the project. And that that goal of sort of broadening our public understanding of the, the history of print culture in the U.S. is a fairly important one, especially as so digital culture seems to be 
really putting pressure on in the print medium, right? Like you know, you know, right. that's on the decline. Um, you're at a teaching institution. Um, is this something that you're using in the classroom as a teaching tool? Or you envision like sort of incorporating that into the final website to allow people to submit lesson plans or sort of think about how the ways they've employed it? In the classroom, I certainly, I certainly hope so. Um, I certainly hope that um, once word is out about the project, and, and we're trying to do is, you know, to promote it in, in any way we can, that people will begin to develop assignments around it. I mean, there are a lot of people in English, for example, who are who are working in periodical studies, who I think seem interested in using this. Tell some of the stories I'm talking about, but but also to discover other stories about some of these major publications. You know, The New Yorker, for example, is in there from virtually its inception. Esquire, which especially in the 1930s and 40s, published one of the biggest names in American literary history. So we definitely want to want to get want to get the word out there. I teach a couple of different courses where this is probably going to play a role. Uh, one is a graduate course on um, on modernist magazines, right? So both high and low. And so having this data could allow uh, students to do projects on individual magazines, some of which are in are are in in this um, in this project. So having having that data available gives them yet another resource to draw on to tell the stories of of these particular publications. I also teach a course on on pulp magazines and. There are a lot of pulp magazines, and I mean, they were really they they wanted advertisers. Most of the uh, pulp magazines, uh, especially you know not not especially the ones that lasted more than a few issues, um, are are in there. And you've got multiple large publishing combinations, not just Street and Smith, but Monthly, popular publications, uh, thrilling publications, these big big publishing uh, pulp publishers give you a real sense of, of how vast the pulp readership was. You know, we can we can do things like narrow, like take the population of a state and correlate it with the number of, of you know a certain publisher in there and, and say, wow, there's you know, there's whatever, there's there's one magazine from this publisher for every fifteen people in Nevada or something in, in this year. And and you just think, wow, that it 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 allows you to to kind of to kind of really see the pervasiveness of this magazine or that magazine. So yeah, that's, I think that's a big, I, I, and, and really, I mean, I think of this project as uh, it is a labor of love and it's, and it's a lot of labor, but, but it's a project that I'm most interested in seeing what other people do with what we've, with what we put out there, right. um, which is why we want to make all the data downloadable and why we want the visualizations is I don't want to I don't I don't want to want to own this data in a particular kind of way I'm excited to see what other scholars what students what teachers decide is really valuable about this and what they can make of it because there are so many of these little pieces that you notice as you're moving through here's a spike you know and what's up with that right Right. You know, here, here's here's when this magazine begins to fail. What's up with that? There's so many of those little stories that uh, I think could generate great scholarship, great assignments. So I'm, I'm certainly hoping that it gets that it gets used in the classroom. We want it to be pretty uh, user friendly and intuitive 
on on the ultimate website that will probably be ready later in this year. Yeah, so I certainly hope it'll be useful. And that's a great place to stop. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about your projects. And also, well, thank you, uh, Julian. It's my pleasure. This will be a great conversation for my students who I'm planning to uh, have listened to this. But I also will make sure that when I distribute this, that we put a link to your site. Great. And hopefully people will find it because I'm excited about getting a chance to use it. And I really think I should talk to you again, specifically about building that interface because that's no small task. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not. It's not. <laughs> but I always try to keep these conversations short and, and on point. And so I'm going to say goodbye and thanks for listening to Reframing History. And thanks, Brooks, for taking the time. Thank you for listening to Reframing History. This is an anchor podcast that you can subscribe to on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please join us again for our next episode. Thank you.